This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Today's sermon text is from 3 John 1 through 8. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You would do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. This is God's word. Good. Please be seated. So we're continuing in our series today in 3 John or 3 John. Uh, Ted and I both talked about how we went to seminary with brothers and sisters who are from the UK and they will say 3 John, they'll also say Isaiah. So they say all types of things incorrectly, but it just rubs off. It just rubs off on you. So I may say 3 John, sometimes it feels better than saying 3 John. So it's the same letter and I'll use them back and forth. Uh, I don't think there's a right way. So we are going to continue in this series with three sermons for 3 John. Last week, Ted opened us up with an introduction to the letter, telling us that it was a personal letter to a man named Gaius. And what he did is he situated us a little bit in helping us understand John, the writer of this letter, his relationship to Gaius, who the letter is written to. And today we're going to continue on. Today we're going to talk about the nature of faithfulness in the local church. But before we get there, we have to understand something about 1, 2, and 3 John. Really, to interpret, especially 2nd and 3rd John, you have to somehow reconstruct what was happening in history. In other words, what was the order of the letters? What was happening? What was going on? Why were these letters written? And that's important in order to interpret in any way and to begin to apply it. And so I want to spend just a couple minutes of explaining how I believe 1, 2, and 3 John fit together. Many of us are very aware that 1 John is a letter written to those in a church and really churches to help them understand how they can be assured of their salvation. And when we read 1 John, we realize that it was meant for circulation all throughout the churches. At this point, the author, who is the Apostle John, had settled in Ephesus, probably leaving sometime around 70 AD, the fall of Jerusalem. He's part of this exile that goes out of Jerusalem, and it seems to he has settled in Ephesus, and he is completing his ministry out of this city. It also seems that somehow he has some type of oversight over these churches in Asia Minor and in the greater geographical region of Ephesus. And so he has some type of oversight. And 1 John is meant to address issues that all of these house churches are dealing with, and it was to be circulated to those churches. Now in 2 John, we see a little bit more of what's going on. It appears that there were false teachers who once were a part of John's congregation who have left the faith, John says, 
for a heresy that believed a couple main things. One of the things they believed is that Jesus did not, in fact, come in the flesh. Now, there are a couple different heresies that could belong to, and we're not quite sure which one it is. It's probably a mixture of a few things going on. But the bottom line is they denied the central tenet of Christianity, and that is that God became a man and died, actually died on behalf of his people. So they denied that. They also seemed to deny that they were under any influence of sin. Uh, they were, they seemed to deny uh, any effect that sin still had on them. And in fact, they were telling people, if you're not perfect, you're probably not a Christian. Now, John deals with that in 1 John. In 2 John, he, he tells us, we see, that those people didn't find it satisfying enough to sort of start their own clique, but they sent missionaries out to go to all the churches to try to win converts to their heresy. And in 2 John, John tells them, this church he writes to, he calls it the elect lady. So he he writes a letter to this church and he says, when they come, do not show them hospitality, meaning do not welcome them into the house because if you do, you will actually unwittingly be communicating to all who are in the church and outside the church that you believe what they believe. So you may not, you shall not welcome them in, in hospitality. So that's what Second John is, making us aware of the fact that these heretics were going around trying to win converts. Now in Third John, it's not written to a group of churches. It's not written to a church as a whole. It's written to an individual in a church. His name is Gaius. And it appears that Gaius, in the midst of controversy, in the midst of conflict, has been faithful by welcoming in these brothers also coming out of John's church, but these brothers are preaching the truth. So we have two groups of missionaries, very confusing, right? Going around the churches. One group of missionaries are not representing the truth. They're denying the truth of the gospel and they're trying to win converts. There's also a group of missionaries who are true to the name of Jesus, who are true to the teaching that was handed down from the beginning. And they also are going around the churches teaching. Now, uh, I doubt many of you have heard a sermon series on 3 John. Uh, I never have. I've never sat under um, one. I've never even studied Third John to any great extent. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because there's no explicit doctrinal teaching that's given here in Three John. And I just thought, well, it's so short, it can't mean much. So I'm not sure why. But what I found in studying it is that in this letter to Gaius, we get to see a precious look into not only the local church, but into a believer's life. A believer not very much different than you and I, who long to live a faithful life, even in the midst of complex realities, even in the midst of realities that are changing, suffering around us, expectations put on us, conflict in the church, conflict in our family. All these realities were real to Gaius and all these realities are real to us. But in this letter to Gaius, particularly in this passage this morning, we all, I think, can learn from John's words to Gaius because we all seek to be faithful to the truth in every situation. Every single one of us as Christians longs to learn what it means to be faithful in whatever situation God has put us in. And John is writing to confirm to Gaius that he indeed is living a faithful life and that he has lived a faithful life. So today's passage, John is not so much exhorting Gaius, but he is encouraging Gaius to remain faithful to the truth. And today I want to look at two snapshots through a window, as it were, 
to the nature of faithfulness in the local church and in our lives. We're going to see it in two pictures. First, it is faithfulness described. And then after that, it will be the nature of faithfulness depicted. So first, faithfulness described. If you look with me here in verse 3, Ted went over this a little bit last week. It says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. Now, that's a very wooden translation. It's a fine one. It probably means something like the truth that is in you, or as the NIV translates it and others, uh, your faithfulness to the truth. So these brothers that had gone out from John, the faithful ones, came back after they had been to Gaius' church, and they were testifying to how loving and how faithful Gaius was. Now, in this reality, his faithfulness to the truth is really faithfulness in two ways. The first way is that he's faithful to the doctrine that was handed down from the beginning, which is Jesus actually came in the flesh. The others were denying that fact, but Gaius is holding on to the truth. He's being faithful to that truth, to that reality. And John is ecstatic because he understands if, you, if, if guys were to let go of this faith, I'm sorry, of this truth, it would be impossible to live a faithful life because he would be rejecting who Jesus is and therefore who God is. So he's overjoyed. He's excited about this reality, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, as indeed you are walking in the truth walking in it. You see, for John, the evidence that Gaius is getting along well is that he remains faithful to the truth. He remains faithful in correct doctrine and persisting in correct action. The truth that John speaks of here is that which is spoken from the beginning, but it's also lived out in reality in Gaius's life. Right? Do you see this? This is crucial in the Bible, and it's very clear in all of John's writings. And that is this, that true doctrine and true action always go together. They are conjoined at the hip, so to speak. And so one way John talks about it, and one way we're used to hearing about it, and we see it here, is oftentimes we see that faithfulness is truth and love. It's the relationship between true doctrine and a loving life. It's a life shaped by true doctrine. And so in that sense, it's actually truth enacted. It's truth put in to action. So John is not only joyful that Gaius continues to hold the same doctrinal truth, but that he continues to walk in it. So you see verses three and four, for example, he's talking about this truth of the doctrine that he's holding to, that, that Christ is and has come in the flesh. And then in verses five through eight, he's gonna show a picture of the way in which this truth that he believes in has worked itself out in his life. You see, to walk in truth is to love. That phrase, walking in truth, is so, is so beautiful, actually. To walk in truth is to love, and to love is truth enacted. It's truth put into play. It's a life shaped by what it believes. You see, I think some of us, we gravitate more towards this reality of true doctrine. And it's necessary. Like we have to understand this. John isn't backing off from this. He calls them heretics because they don't believe the true doctrine about who Christ is. The teaching that was handed down from the beginning, which is Christ, God in the flesh, lived. He actually lived. He actually died. We have to understand doctrine. 
And others of us, we want to emphasize the implications of true doctrine. We want to emphasize love. And that's good too. But they always must go together. But I have found, even in reflecting on this sermon, in our day and age, and I don't think it was much different in this day and age, but in our day and age, we are pummeled with information. We're constantly taking in information, things that are supposed to be true, right? Uh, A new study said this. Another study said this. And the other study disagreed with both of those studies and said this, right? So there's always new information that is claiming to be true in our lives. And at some point, we're inundated with these realities and our life out of our own protection, we, we, we stop embodying what we believe to be true. We're just not able to because it's become so abstract to us. This idea of truth has just become an abstraction. And in a sense, love is an abstract noun, right? You can't, as your grammar teacher said, you can't take a bucket of it to your mother. It's not like sand or some other noun. But what I find so interesting about this passage and about what John and Gaius were dealing with is that the very doctrine that the heretics were rejecting is the very truth that can actually change us into faithful, loving people. It's the only truth that can, that can help us enact this reality in the world. This is what I mean. In a very profound sense, Christian discipleship is the process of, of learning how to keep these things together. Christian discipleship is the process of learning the truth, meditating on the truth, and enacting the truth in our lives. All of discipleship is about that. It's about being faithful to truth, enacted in love. You see, this is exactly how God reveals himself. The God of the Bible doesn't just tell us about himself. He shows us in the world. So God tells us he's patient. I am patient. How do we know that he's patient? How do we really know? Well, he shows us, doesn't he? You just take the Exodus, for example. He tells his people, I am slow to anger. I am patient. I am steadfast. He tells them that. He wants them to believe it. And then all of a sudden, Moses has gone too long. And they build a golden calf. And God destroys them. No, of course he doesn't. Because that would not be to his nature as he described it. He actually shows patience. And so now when the people hear God is patient, they remember back to the place that God enacted his love, which was by withholding his wrath. You see, when God reveals himself, he does it in words and in action, always. When I reflected on this this week, I thought, even up to this point, we're beginning to move out of abstract thought, but we still, I don't think we still brought it home. So what I'm saying is that God, who is truth, speaks of true things, tells us true things, reveals, us, reveals to us true things about himself, but the only way we can fully know it is when he enacts it in the world and shows us. And in a sense, his saying it is showing us. But in our lives, what does this look like? 
Well, some of us, I don't know which ones of us, deal with a difficult child as a parent. Okay, many of us do. How does the truth that Jesus has come in the flesh, how does it enact itself there? I think the incarnation shows me that in my child's rebellion, I must continue to pursue them. In my rebellion, God came to me for the sake of reconciliation. Discipline is for the sake of reconciliation. It's for the sake of conformity to what God has made us to be. And so when I'm uh, disciplining my children, I want first reconciliation. Yes, I want obedience, but I want reconciliation to myself and of course to God. And the incarnation, that is to say Jesus becoming flesh, teaches me not only how to be patient, not only how to pursue my children, but it shows me how God did in Jesus Christ. And it's gonna take sacrifice. That's another thing that it tells me. Parenting in this way takes sacrifice. It takes many of my resources. In fact, it some days feels like it takes all of my resources. What about this? What about anxiety? Some of us struggle with anxiety in such a way that it, it, it's borderline crippling. Some of us struggle with anxiety. We're not sure exactly how some days we can live a normal life. We think something is terribly wrong with us. How does the truth of the incarnation, Jesus becoming flesh, how does that truth, that doctrine, enact itself when we have anxiety? Jesus himself, God who became flesh, didn't just tell us, why are you worried about today? I mean, why are you worried about tomorrow? Aren't there enough worries about today? He didn't just tell us, do not be anxious. He showed us what it was like to live through the temptation of anxiety and yet to trust the Father. He didn't just tell us to trust the Father. He showed us how to trust the Father. That's how the incarnation helps in anxiety. For some of us, what about temptation? Some of us have been struggling with a certain temptation for so long, we're not sure that if it'll ever go away. Some of us are almost crippled at this point by this temptation, these thoughts, these actions, these desires. How does the incarnation, the doctrine, the truth that God became flesh, how might that teach us how to enact, fight against this temptation? The Bible tells us that because God became man, Jesus himself actually experienced all temptations. He experienced them. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He is the truth. And he comes and displays love. He models it for us. He shows us how it's done so that we can understand how this doctrine of God pursuing us, of God coming, actually might enact itself in love in all of our life. What about conflict in relationships? Some of us have been deeply wounded. Even by people in our own community, we've been wounded by people who have betrayed us, who have turned their backs on us. How might the truth, holding to the doctrine that God actually got messy, that God left his throne, came to earth, lived as a man in flesh, how might that encourage us? How might that help us faithfully walk in the truth? Was not Jesus rejected? Was not Jesus the one who, who ultimately was betrayed? Of course. And so you see, even in the very act of what God has done in the world, truth always works itself out in love. They go together. 
Now, what John is essentially saying is that he's asking this question, what will you do now that you know? What will you do with your knowledge? Now, I play a game. I play a game regularly. Some of you will think I'm bad parents after I tell this story. And maybe some of you can help me understand why this is a horrible idea, not just fun. But last night, for example, we were at Barnes & Noble at the mall. Our kids love to go there. They love to look at the books, read the books, play with the books. They love to ask me to buy the books. And what I like to do with Scarlett, my 18-month-old, is she'll run away from me. And remember, this is about what people do with what they know. Okay? So as she runs away from me, I hold back. And I let her get, like however far I'm comfortable with, I let her go a little bit farther. But I can still see her. And I'm watching people because I want to see what people do when they see an 18-month-old without a parent. (laughs) I really play this game. And last night, last night was a pretty good night for the human race at Altamont Springs. (laughs) Most of them were very kind. And what they do is they see the child, they laugh, and Scarlett says hi to everyone. So she says hi, and they say hi, and I'm standing back. And then all of a sudden, they'll realize there's no parent. And so they'll kind of look up and look around. And sometimes if I don't, you know, put myself in there, they'll begin to move towards my child to touch them. And that's when I say, oh, no, no, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then they know I'm there. But when they see me, they're okay. But, but here's the point I'm getting at, is I want to know what will you do with what you know? You know there's a child, you can't see the parent. Some people, what they do is they say hi, they talk to the child, there's no parent, and then they walk away. <laughs> now, I'm certainly not past that. Especially before I had children, I just don't know if I would have put it all together. But it's an interesting game. It's an interesting dynamic of what we expect to happen when people know certain things. Now, in the Bible, knowing is doing in a sense. To truly know is to put that knowledge into action. But if I were only to leave it there, I don't know if I would speak to all of what John speaks to in his writings. You see, this week in our community Bible reading, our plan, we started in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and there's a story about a woman who was forgiven, a very sinful woman, apparently. And this is how the story goes. I'll summarize it. The woman learned that Jesus was reclining at table with Pharisees. And so she comes in, wrecks their dinner, walks right up to Jesus. Presumably, she's the only woman in this room full of men. And when she's there, she's weeping and she has ointment of some type and she pours it on his feet. And as she's pouring it on his feet, her tears are falling on his feet and she's taking her hair and she's cleaning his feet. And the Pharisees are distraught. They're beside themselves and they look at each other and they say, if this man actually knew who she was, he would know that she is a great sinner. By implication, they would expect him with that knowledge to reject her, right? If he would know who she was, he would reject her. But what does Jesus do? He tells them a parable and then he looks at them and he says this. You see her thankfulness, he anoints his feet and Jesus says, her sins are forgiven for she loved much. And the Pharisees are a bit confused. And I imagine while they're talking, she's still looking at Jesus because then it says, and Jesus looked at her 
And Jesus said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What did Jesus do with his knowledge? We see that the power to enact truth in love for the woman comes from her faith. It's born out of faith. And John in his gospel tells us that all who believe in the son of God, he has given them the right to become children of God. This woman understands this. This woman, out of her faith in God's love for her, responds in worship. And Jesus forgives her sins. But you see, it wasn't her love, it wasn't her enacting the truth that she knew about Jesus that, for, that made him forgive her sins. It wasn't her action. It was her faith that produced those actions. So you see, it is true We are implicated. We must put into practice what we know. That's the only way we can prove that we do know God. But the power to put truth into action comes from faith in Jesus. That is a crucial part. And in fact, John in 1 John says, we have come to rely upon the love of God for us because God is love. So you see, Gaius knows the truth That was from the beginning. He has faith in the one who forgives. And it's that faith that is producing faithfulness, both in word and in deed. So we see that the nature of faithfulness described is described in the Bible and here, even in these three verses, as truth and love. And next, we see faithfulness depicted. Now in verses five through eight, John picks up directly on the specific way Gaius is walking in the truth. Now remember the scenario. There were brothers who were sent out as faithful missionaries from John to go preach the truth. And when they came into the city, there was a reality in this day and age where strangers had no standing in law or custom in any place they went into. So if you were a stranger and you walked into a community that no one knew you in, you were in danger. In fact, it was common that these people were not even treated as human. They were actually treated not only as strangers, but as potential enemies, as people who might be seeking my uh, ill, not my welfare. There was no brotherhood of humanity, right? You You probably didn't walk by and say hi to people on the street if you didn't know them. That just wasn't the practice in that day and age. And so in order to be safe in order to find a place to stay in a city in which you were a stranger, you had to be welcomed in by someone. And let's see how that happened with Gaius. We're going to read through five through eight quickly. And we're going to unpack the scenario a little bit because this is Gaius's faithfulness put into action in this instance. Okay. In verse five, he says, beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Gaius did not know who these men were. He had never met them before. And in fact, we'll learn next week that Diotrephes, who was the leader in this small group of house churches, maybe, but definitely uh, this church that Gaius was a part of, Diotrephes was saying, in fact, we're not gonna welcome them. And we're gonna talk about why he wouldn't welcome these brothers but he was in the place of authority and he himself would not welcome them and he made sure that no one else in these house churches in this city would welcome them. 
But the problem for Gaius, apparently, was that he listened to their message, and they were speaking the message of the truth. So here he had knowledge. He knew that they were speaking the, the true message. He also heard what Diotrephes was telling him to do, and he had a choice to make. He, he had a choice. How am I going to be faithful in this instance to Jesus, the true doctrine of him becoming a man? How does that look in this instance? And for Gaius, it looked like ignoring Diotrephes and welcoming these brothers in. He made efforts. He says, all your efforts for these brothers. Who knows? But we know for sure it included welcoming them in, giving them food, providing any resources they would need for their mission there in that city. We also know that Gaius was representing them by taking them in his house. He was saying, they're with me. If you harm them in any way, you are offending me and my household. For John, there was no more of a faithful thing that he could have done for these brothers than to welcome them in. So these brothers in verse six, apparently they were finished with their mission and they came back to Ephesus where John was and they testified to Gaius's love before the church there. This was a common practice. If someone welcomed you in, in a city, you would go back to your community and say, hey, I made a friend there. When you go there, just tell them you know me and you'll be less stranger-like. That's exactly how this worked. And in some cases, there would be systems of medallions. And so if I was no longer a stranger, you would give me a medallion. And when I went into that community, someone else from my community would say, hey, look, remember this person? Yeah, I'm with them. So you can welcome me in. He says, he goes on in verse six, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So he tells Gaius, not only are you to welcome them, but you're to send them on in their journey. Give them whatever they need. And worthy of God, essentially what he's getting at is be generous. How generous has God been to us? He wants Gaius to send them on their way in a generous manner. Verse seven, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. And essentially what this means is that in this day and age, there were lots of traveling teachers. They would teach philosophies. They would teach other religions. And it was common for them to make their living by going into the public spaces and preaching and then receiving money from those people who listened to them. But that was not the common practice of the church in this time. In fact, there are some early writings that say, you know, it's a false prophet if they accept money from those outside the church. And so in essence, he goes on to say, therefore, we ought to support people like these. What he's saying is, if you don't support these brothers who have gone out for the sake of the name, he says, for Jesus, our older brother, our savior, they're going out because they've been called by him. And if you don't accept them, who will accept them? You see, hospitality in this day and age is really the process by which a person moves from stranger to friend. And if Gaius was not to welcome these people in, these people who had gone out from the name, for the name, right? What if he had this knowledge? He heard their message and he said, that's true. These are true brothers. But Diotrephes says, don't welcome them in. What does he do with that? What would you do with that? Right, can we not resonate with this reality? that there are innumerable variables in our life that make enacting the truth seem complicated. Especially when it comes to relationships. As the community group's pastor, I can tell you that we have amazing people here. We have wonderful community groups and we have human beings who sin. 
And so there are always instances, and I am not excluded from this, where I need brothers and sisters to speak into my life and say, you are not living in line with the gospel here. It doesn't seem like much, but that flippant comment you made really hurt that person. Didn't you see that? Is that in line with the gospel? Or I know that you might not mean this, but the way in which you're speaking sounds awful gossipy. And I know we're couching it in ways that seem holy or make it seem acceptable, but that's not right. You see, that might be what faithfulness and truth and love look like in our mundane day-to-day lives. It might look like us, me, you, going to a coworker and asking their forgiveness for snapping at them. It might look like you asking forgiveness to your children in the way that you discipline them out of anger. You see, we are really asked the question here, what will I do given that I'm a child of God now that I know? Our knowledge in the gospel implicates us. And discipleship is this process of learning how to live out who we are, where truth and love remain together. And every one of us, as we're sent out today, in every area of our life, is called to figure out exactly where we're not walking in line with the truth. And it's probably a good idea to invite a couple people, those you trust, those who know you, to either encourage you, like John is with Gaius, encourage you in where you are walking in the truth, or exhort you in places that you're not walking in line with the truth. And next week, we're gonna talk about that reality with theotrophies and conflict in the local church. But before we close, I want to point to one more amazing thing. Gaius' faithfulness to truth and love is depicted mainly in his hospitality to these brothers. And hospitality is essentially the process by which a person moves from stranger to friend. And honestly, I'm not sure if there is any other more beautiful way in which Gaius could have enacted the truth of Jesus coming in the flesh than by showing these brothers hospitality. And this is why. In the gospel, in the fact that Jesus, the one who was in heaven and perfect, left all of that to become a man and live the perfect life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserved, he came to us while we were strangers. And more than strangers, we were enemies of God. And Jesus, on, his, on the cross, the perfect son of God became a stranger to God so that we could become a child of God. You see, that's the gospel. The gospel is this, this reality that God becomes man That Jesus becomes a stranger to the Father so that you and I could be welcomed in as family members. That's the power of the gospel. And that is faithfulness depicted. You see, Jesus is the faithful one. Jesus is the only congruent one who lives perfectly truth and love. And he doesn't just tell us, he shows us. He doesn't just speak it, he does it. And he calls us 
to follow him in that. Not as those who are seeking to become children of God, but those who already are children of God. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that some of us are more comfortable with just talking about doctrine, which is absolutely necessary. And some of us are scared from dealing with very specific truths that you've revealed to us about reality and about the world and about ourselves. We would rather just live life as we see fit and call that loving. But you demonstrate perfectly for us that truth and love go together. When you tell us that you love us, when you tell us that you pursue us, when you tell us that you will overcome our enemies, you don't, you don't only speak it, but you speak it and you enact it. You speak it and you complete it on our behalf. And so as we are walking forward as disciples, I pray that you would conform us to that reality. Make us more and more into the type of people who live lives where we enact truth and love. Help us be a picture to all of those around us of truth and love, similar to Gaius, that we would look up in whatever situation you've called us in, even in the midst of conflict, and you would give us the power by your spirit to live faithfully, to live faithful to the truth We're thankful that your Holy Spirit does these things and changes us. We pray you would send us out in courage.